have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew 25. Um, as you're doing that, uh, say one quick thing. Uh, I mentioned this last week. I want to mention it again this week so you're not unprepared. Next Sunday, uh, we're going to take up a special offering for Jason and Felicia Winkle. They're here somewhere. Y'all want to stand up? Jason and Felicia uh, are headed to China with their three children um, in late August, correct? Hopefully. And so we want to help them get there. Not because we don't want them here, but because they want to be in China. And uh, we feel like that's where the Lord's called them. So next week we're going to take up a special offering. I just want you all to come uh, prepared for that. They have cards out on the table out front. If you want to grab a card, you can get a little more information. I'm sure they'd be more than willing to tell you uh, what they're going to be doing in China and how you can help. So that is that. So my question I was thinking about was, is this the end? Um, Every generation, there seems to be folks who think they're it. They're the last generation. Jesus is going to come back while they're alive. And they look at events, usually in the Middle East, and say, look at how all of these things are lining up um, to demonstrate or support the fact that the end is coming and we've all got to get ready and some people take the militia out and hoard canned goods and build bunkers and say, you know, that's what we got to do. And some people quit their job and go sit on a hill and say, that's what we've got to do. And other people, you know, some of you uh, were involved in the stuff at the Civic Center a few weeks ago. Some people would say that those type of supernatural events are evidence of the end. I don't know. So that was, I just started thinking about all that and wondering, well, is this, is this the end? Are we living in the end times? Are, are we it? Whoever we are, we're all different ages here. Is our generation the one that's going to be here when Jesus comes back? And if so, what does that mean for us? Does it really matter? If he's coming back and we don't, does, does it matter? We're just supposed to hang on and when he gets here, we'll be able to figure it out because he'll be the guy on the white horse in the sky and we'll say, okay, that's Jesus and he'll do whatever he's going to do and we'll just kind of be along for the ride. So I've been, I've been thinking about that and wondering kind of how we fit and what is our responsibility as Christians, as brothers and sisters, to one another and what's my responsibility kind of as the pastor of this church and what are we supposed to be doing if we're living in the end. I was uh, also thinking last week we talked a little bit about this life and how it ties into the next one and that there's not a discontinuity, that what we're doing here prepares us for what we're doing, what we will do in the next life. Remember we talked about birth and we had the whole conversation with whether gestate is actually a word and that's what happens when you're in the womb and I got medical confirmation that gestate is indeed a word and that is what happens when you're a baby. So you have babies in the womb and they're being formed during this nine or ten month period and then they're actually birthed and what's going on while they're in here is preparing them for life out here. This is critical. All this stuff that's happening while they're in their mom's womb is critical to their well-being, our well-being, once we're out, so to speak. Uh, You know, they say folic acid, for instance, you're supposed to take folic acid during the first, like, six or eight weeks because it prevents spina bifida, I think is what it prevents. And if you miss that window, you just miss it. You can't go back and make up for it. You can't take double four, five, six months down the road to make up for what you missed at the beginning. There are things that need to happen during the formation of a baby, then and you can't go back and fix them later. You have a window, and you either do it or you don't, and then you live with the consequences really forever after that. And I was saying the same thing is true for us here, our life here. There's a window that we have 
average person lives to be 75. We've got a window, and at some point we're going to die. And when we die, that's transition into the age to come. Everybody's going to live forever. It's just a matter of location. You're either going to live forever with God or you're going to live forever apart from God. That's, that's it. You're going to live forever. You're created the image of God, and part of that means you're going to live forever. We don't believe in the annihilation of people when they die. There are folks who believe in that, but that's not what the Bible teaches. You're going to live forever. It's just a matter of where. And so what you do during your 75 years here will set you up for your forever, wherever it is that you're going to spend forever. Either you're forever with God or you're forever apart from God. And that choice is yours. He leaves it up to you. You get to decide where you want to spend forever. But the things that you do now will prepare you for that. And it's more than just saying, well, I'm a Christian, so I'm going to live forever with the Lord, if you are a Christian, and that is the choice that you've made, the Bible also clearly teaches that there are things that God wants to do in you now that will set you up better, if I can say that, for forever with him. The Bible talks a lot about rewarding people for what they've done. There are things that God wants to do in us that will prepare us even uh, for a better existence, if, if you can hear me say that, with forever with him. Not that there are grades of heaven and somebody's you know, in a shack by you know, and somebody else is in a mansion. I don't know about all that stuff, but I do know the Bible does teach that we'll be rewarded according to what we've done, and that's a real thing. So anyway, all that to say, what we're doing here is preparing us for where we're headed. And the transition from this life to the next one will be death for everybody except whoever's living in that end time. And I don't know if that's us or not. That last generation that's on earth when Jesus comes back won't die. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 15, you won't die, you'll be changed in the twinkling of an eye, and you'll get a new body, you'll get a body that's suited for forever, for the age to come. And so my question was, is that us, you know, is, is REM right? Is this the end of the world as we know it? Is it the end of the, I don't know, they wrote that, what, 25 years ago? Are they right? Are we approaching the end? This is Matthew 25, starting in verse 1. At that time, the kingdom of heaven... This is Jesus has just given a sermon about the signs of the end of the age. So when he says at that time, he's talking about when Jesus uh, is coming back, the last days. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The five foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied, they may not be, There may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. The point of that parable, I think, is, is pretty obvious. Jesus is coming back, and we need to be ready. That's it. Jesus is coming back, and we need to be ready. And over the next few weeks, I don't know how long, through the summer, at least maybe four or five weeks, we're going to look at Jesus coming back, and what does it mean for us to be ready? What are we supposed to do? I don't think the fact that Jesus is coming back, does not. I don't think it's a nothing idea. Well, it doesn't apply to me, so I don't care. The New Testament is full of passages talking about Jesus coming back and what we're supposed to do in light of that, how we're supposed to live in light of that. I don't think it's just theory for us unless we happen to be this last generation. Otherwise, 
a good portion of the New Testament is irrelevant for almost everyone who's ever lived. And I don't think that's true. I think there are things about the fact that Jesus is coming back, there's, there's truth there that applies to our life now. The, way Je- the things the Lord expects of people in that last generation, he expects of us as well. It might be more difficult in that last generation to live out some of those things, but I think the expectations are the same. So that's what we're going to do over the next few weeks. We'll get into Revelation, and we'll talk about that, and we'll talk about some of these other things um, that Jesus talks about in terms of his coming back. Actually, the last recorded words of Jesus are in Revelation 22.20, and his last words are, Behold, I'm coming soon. And we can debate whether he was right about the soon part or not, but that is what he said. Behold, I'm coming soon. The last chapter of Revelation has his last kind of recorded message. And three times he says, I'm coming back. Verse 7, verse 12, and verse 20. He wants to make sure before he's done talking that everybody knows that's not the last word. He's going to be back. He says it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I'm coming back. Paul says it throughout his letters. Jesus is coming back. Again, that's a key element of the gospel. It's not some add-on that doesn't make a difference. That's a key element of the gospel that Jesus is coming back. Otherwise, things aren't good if he's not coming back. If he came once and we just did the communion, you know, from when he came once and he went to heaven and that's it, then our world, there's not a lot of hope for the world that we live in if he's done with us. And the Bible teaches as a way of inspiring hope, he is coming back and when he comes back, he's going to make everything right. He's going to fix every problem that there is. He's going to right every wrong, every injustice will be taken care of, No more tears, no more mourning, no more crying, no more weeping, no more sickness, no more sin, no more death. That's where we're headed. To get there, there's a little tricky part in the road, but that's kind of where we're going, and those are the things that we're going to look at. So just real quick from this parable, a few things. Jesus is coming back, and we need to be ready. Let me say this about Jesus' return, just so we're on the same page. All this is from Matthew 24. You can go back and read that. That's his sermon on... um, the end times. The first thing, when Jesus comes back, everybody's going to know it. It's going to be visible. He says this in Matthew twenty four twenty six. So if anyone tells you there he is out in the desert, don't go out, or here he is in the inner rooms, don't believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Everybody's going to know when Jesus comes back. His first coming was hidden. He was born to Mary in a small, in a stable out in the middle kind of nowhere. There were a few shepherds that knew about it. There were a few wise men who knew about it and a couple of people at the temple in Jerusalem when Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to be dedicated. And that's really it. Not a lot of notoriety, not a lot of fanfare, except for those isolated groups that knew he was coming. It won't be like that the second time. The second time, the Bible says, everybody on the earth is going to know. Now, I don't know how that works, how people in the southern hemisphere and northern hemisphere see the same thing. I don't get that. But the Bible says everybody's going to see it and everybody's going to know. Jesus is very clear. When he came the first time, you can go back and read this, uh, he, was, um, he came in the form of a suffering servant. That's Isaiah 53. He came to do what we just remembered. He came to die as a ransom for our sins. When he comes back the second time, you can go back and read this. It's Revelation 19. He's going to come as a warrior king on a white horse with a sword in his hand to execute justice. It's going to be completely different. It's the same guy. But it's going to be two completely different scenarios. And everyone's going to know. The second is the timing is unknown. Matthew 24, 36, Jesus says this, No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. I'm not sure Jesus could be any more explicit than that. Nobody knows. If anybody tells you they've got 
some word from the Lord on a date when Jesus is coming back, they're crazy or they're lying. Or maybe they're just mistaken. They're wrong. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Everyone who's ever predicted has all been wrong, and everyone who will predict will be wrong. He can't be any more clear than that. Nobody knows when it's going to happen. So don't, if you hear that stuff, you can just write those guys off. And they can either be crazy, they can be lying, or they can be mistaken, depending on how much you like them. But they're wrong. That's that. But there will be signs. And this is the other thing we're going to look at this. We, won't, we don't know the exact hour, but there will be indications that we're approaching the end. We talked some about signs last week and how they can be easily misinterpreted. Um, if you don't have any context, you can see a sign and go in the completely wrong direction. Remember that? We talked about if, I, if there's a billboard for Cracker Barrel, turn left five miles, and they put that in your front yard, you're not going to know what to do. It, it belongs in the interstate five miles from Cracker Barrel. And if you see it out of context, you're not going to be able to follow that sign. So there are signs that will be given, but we have to understand them in context or we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna get messed up. We're going to wind up moving in the wrong direction. We're going to misinterpret them and it's going to screw us up. So we're going to look some at the signs that point to the fact that we're getting close to the end, but there will be signs. Jesus says that. If you want to go back and read this stuff, Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21, those are all, it's all the same sermon, and it's, Jesus, it's called, if your Bible has subtitles, it probably says the signs of the end of the age. And it's Jesus saying this is what's going to happen at the end. It's a little bit confusing, but you can kind of wade through it, and we'll talk about that some. And if you want to read about kind of the last days, that's also called the Great Tribulation, Revelation 6 through 16, it'll really make you feel good about yourself. So don't read that right before you go to bed. Read that some other time, and we'll talk about that as well. So here's the parable. Jesus is returning, and we need to be ready. Why do we need to be ready? Because according to the Bible, these last days, this end times before Jesus returns, there's going to be an increase in supernatural activity, good and bad. There's going to be God's going to do more stuff, and the devil's going to do more stuff, and we need to be able to wade through that. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 13, that he who stands firm to the end will be saved. So there's this expectation that Jesus has that we're going to make it through, that he expects us to be faithful. Just because it gets hard, we can't throw in the towel and say, but Jesus, it was really hard. You know how I felt about you. I just couldn't hang in there because it was really bad. He says, if you stand firm to the end, then you will be saved. And this kind of this is going to pull us off a little bit, but we'll go ahead and deal with it now. There's several different theories on the Great Tribulation. According to Daniel 9, it's going to be seven years. Some people say that's literal, some not. I don't care. There's going to be some time period, we'll say seven years, that's known as the Great Tribulation. That phrase, Great Tribulation, comes from Revelation 714 where it says there will be a great tribulation. So that's where we get that idea. Some people think the church will be taken from the earth before the tribulation. They're what's called pre-tribulation. They believe in what's called a pre-tribulation rapture. All those are big words. Rapture means caught up. So they believe that before all the stuff gets bad, Jesus is going to show up in heaven, not actually come to earth, show up in heaven, and all Christians are going to kind of be transported to heaven, like Star Trek. We're, just, we're going to be here, and then we're not. That's the left behind, if you ever read any of those books. That's where those guys are coming from. There's kind of a little variation of that view called mid-tribulation rapture, which you can imagine. They believe halfway through the tribulation, Jesus is going to show up and take the church. Before things get really bad, at three, the three-and-a-half-year mark, 
we're going to get transported up. And then there's another view called the post-tribulation rapture, again, which means the church has to live through the whole thing, and then Jesus comes back. So you've got three choices. You can believe that, the, that as a Christian, you're going to get zapped up before things get bad, before things get really bad halfway through, or you've got to make it all the way through to the end. This is my camp. I believe we've got to make it all the way through to the end. And we'll talk about why, and you can disagree with me, but I'll, I, I will just say this. If I'm wrong, nobody's out anything. If you believe in this and you're wrong, you better be ready. Seriously. If you believe that you're going to get zapped up before things get bad and you're wrong, you've got, you better be ready. And that's, I think, the point of this parable, to be ready. So we can talk about that in more detail just real quick. I'll give you my five-minute version on post-tribulation rapture. This is the only scripture in the, in the entire Bible that talks about a rapture. This is in 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 15. This is Paul uh, talking, According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive and are left till the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. That's another way of saying people who've died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together. That word caught up, I don't know, is a... That's where we get the word rapture. There's some Latin word that sounds like rapture that we get rapture from. So that's the only time in the New Testament you'll see anything like that. We'll be caught up together with the clouds, in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. So that's it. That's the only passage where you can get rapture from that, that we just read. And it doesn't say much about timing. And what my opinion is you've got to mesh that with what Jesus said about the end. You've got to take what Paul said, because what he's trying to address is people who say, well, what's going to happen at the end? What about all the people who've already died? And Paul's saying you don't need to worry about those guys. When Jesus comes back, everyone who's dead is going to be raised again, and then all of us, people, the dead Christians and the Christians who are alive, when Jesus comes back, we're going to meet him in the air. And we're going to meet him in the air, and what I believe is we're going to do a U-turn and come back to earth. And Jesus is going to rule and reign forever. If you believe in a pre-tribulate, pre-tribulation rapture, what you say is that's going to happen and those people are going to, Jesus is going to turn around and go back to heaven. So those are your two choices from 1 Thessalonians 4. Either we're going to meet Jesus and come back to earth and that's it. The bad stuff is over and he's coming to make things right or we're going to go, up, we're going to go back to heaven and there's going to be seven years basically of hell on earth and then Jesus is going to come again. Some people say it doesn't make any sense that you would say, we go up into heaven to meet Jesus and then make a U-turn and come right back to earth. The word for caught up is an old word that was used for a, a king coming to a new city. And just like when you've got company coming, if it's someone you really want to see and you look out your window, you go out to greet them in the driveway and then you make a U-turn and come right back into your house, that's what I think it's talking about. The king's coming. Of course we're going to go out to meet him. You don't just sit in your living room and wait for him to come to the front door. You've been waiting on this guy for thousands of years, you're going to meet him. You're going to go get him, and then you're going to come back. I, to me, that's, not, that's nothing to me in terms of an objection. This is what I get from Matthew 24. You can go back and read, and you'll get all of this from Matthew 24. This is what Jesus says is going to happen at the end. Many will come in Jesus' name and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. You'll be handed over. These, is, these are the disciples or 
Christians, you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. Many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. Many false prophets will appear and deceive many. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, for there will be great distress. That word distress is the exact same as the word tribulation. It's the exact same Greek word. So uh, in Revelation, when it says the great tribulation, it could just as easily say the great distress. It's the exact same word. Or here, Jesus could have said there will be... There will be great distress, unequaled, or great tribulation, excuse me, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. And then this is what Jesus says in verse 29. Immediately after the distress, or immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. You've got angels, trumpets, and, angel, and these people, the angels gathering the elect. In First Thessalonians, you have what? The voice of the archangel, a loud trumpet, and the dead, both dead Christians and Christians who are alive being gathered up to Jesus. It's the same thing. They're talking about the exact same event. And notice what Jesus says in verse 29. Immediately after the distress of those days. And how does he describe the distress of those days? Distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. I don't know how else you can put that together. To me, Jesus is saying, There's, it's going to be really bad and immediately after it's really bad, I'm going to come back and fix everything. I don't know how else you can, I don't know what else you can read into that. There are people who love the Lord, totally smarter than me, who believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. But I don't see it. And I would just encourage you, you don't have, we're not a post-tribulation rapture church. That's not something you've got to check mark on your thing if you want to be a part of this church. Again, all I'm going to say is, know why you believe whatever you believe. If I'm wrong, big deal. That just means I missed seven years of pain. If you're wrong, will you be ready? And that's not a threat, that's just a question, because Jesus does say, no matter what you believe, that he who stands firm to the end will be saved. That makes no sense to me, if you don't have to live through something difficult, but whatever. You still have to stand firm. So whether you're, you believe you're going to be zapped up before or after, whatever. We, we've gone over that enough. So, I'm a post-tribulation rapture guy, and that's where I'm coming from for the rest of this deal. You don't have to believe that. The stuff is still true, whether you believe that or not. It'll just be easier for you because you won't have to live through the things that are really hard. But there's nothing that I'm going to say that is becomes not true if you believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Some of it might not apply to you because you won't be here. But it's true nonetheless. So here's some things that we're going to look at in the next few weeks. These are characteristics of the last days. One is judgment. You can read all of this is in Revelation 6 through 16. Uh, the judgments that you'll read are seals, bowls, and trumpets. And it's really confusing trying to figure out how you put all of that stuff together. We'll talk about all that. I'll give you my theory, and you can give it a thumbs up or thumbs down, but it's, it is what it is. But all of those judgments, in my opinion, are highly symbolic, and we'll talk about that in the next few weeks, about why I think that they're real. I just don't think that you can look literally at some of the details. And when it says a third of the rivers, that you need to look at all the rivers in the world and say, literally, a third of these rivers, this is going to happen to them. I think it's, it's symbolic 
of judgment that God is going to pour out on the earth. Um, the purpose of the judgments is to punish evil, but it's also to bring people to repentance, which I think is a huge point to remember. This isn't just God has thousands and thousands of years of pent-up frustration and he's letting it all out one night. His purpose is to draw people to repentance. You can see this in Revelation 9, 20, 16, 9, and 16, 11. He says something like this. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that can't see or hear or walk. The point of what God is doing, and it's, it's what we talked about. You're about to, it's kind of like the whole um, pregnancy thing. The woman is in the hospital. She's about to give birth. This is it. This is all you have before this baby is born. And that's what's happening with these last days. God is saying, this is it. This is the last little window. Everyone who, this is the last window you have to say yes or no to me. Do you see all of these things going around as evidence of my activity? Will you acknowledge me? This is your last shot. If you say no, it's done. The baby's born and you can't put it back in the womb. That's the, one of the purposes of these judgments. It's Jesus, God trying to get everybody's attention and say, will you acknowledge me? And the Bible says many won't. The last thing, and this, um, for those of you who are kind of in my camp, who think Christians are going to have to live through this, um, Christians are sealed before the Great Tribulation. You can see that in Revelation, I think it's 5. There's this picture of 144,000 people being sealed, and I would say that's, um, that number just represents the total number of the people of God. That's a perfect number. It's 12 squared with plus a thousand, times a thousand or whatever. It's a perfect number. And so that's God saying all of the people who are his people will be sealed. And I don't think we're kept from the Great Tribulation. I think we're kept through it. And if you want to see a parallel to that, you can go back and look at Exodus when Moses um, is trying to get the pe- Pharaoh to let the people of God go. He's trying to get the Jews out of Egypt so they can worship God. And Pharaoh's saying, no, no, no. He's kind of a picture of an antichrist. He won't let the people of God worship. And so God sends all these plagues. There's ten of them. All these plagues. And why the Jews are living with the Egyptians. And he's able to keep the Jews from these plagues. Some of them affect them. There's one where things turn dark. Well, that affects everybody. The Nile turns to blood. That's going to affect everybody. There are others where you see it did not affect the Jews. I think it was the frogs and the gnats and the boils and then obviously the firstborn where the firstborn son of every Egyptian family is killed. That did not affect the Jews. And so to me, that's a picture of where we're headed as Christians. It's not, holy moly, i got to live through hell. How am I going to make it? God's going to seal you and keep you through those things, just like he kept the Jews through the plagues of Egypt. And we'll talk about that more in the next few weeks. So that's some of the stuff. That's not the really positive parts of the great uh, tribulation. There is something positive. Revelation 7, 9 through 17 speaks of a great multitude of people from every nation, tribe, people, and language who will become Christians during the last days. There's this picture of this just massive turning of people to the Lord during the great tribulation, which is wonderful. You see two sides of that. On one side, it's this number 144,000. So from God's perspective, it's this perfect, complete, and full number. And then from the human perspective, it's this great multitude that no one can number. It's the same reality, just viewed from two different lenses. God is saying, this is everyone who's going to say yes. And from the human perspective, you can't even count it. There's so many people from every people, language, uh, and tribe, and nation. 
Jesus says in Matthew 24 that the gospel will be preached to all nations and then the end will come. So, yes, it's going to be bad, but it's also going to be really good because more people are going to become Christians in these last days than we've seen. A massive turning of people to the Lord. So even though the enemy's kind of ratcheting up his work, so is the Lord. So there's kind of two sides of that that we'll be living through. Um, some people that you'll hear, we'll talk about one's the Antichrist. He's also called the beast out of the sea or the beast or the man of lawlessness. Uh, it's a world leader with massive political power who will dominate the world for some period of time. He'll persecute Christians and all non-Christians uh, will worship him. There's a false prophet also called the beast out of the earth. You can read about those guys in Revelation 13. Um, he's a religious leader who performed counterfeit signs and wonders on behalf of the Antichrist to draw attention to the Antichrist. And he'll force humanity to receive this mark of the beast um, to participate in commerce. We'll talk about what all that could be. Um, Satan, obviously, in Revelation 12, he's the dragon. Uh, persecution for Christians will increase, but again, God will uh, take care of us. You can read about that in Revelation 12 as well. And deception will be on the rise. So, yay, yay, end times. None of that stuff sounds really great, but what Jesus says is you just need to be ready. That's the parable that we read. Be ready. The second thing from that parable, our readiness is not transferable. The guys that didn't have oil asked the girls who did for oil, and they said, no, we don't have enough for us and you. They weren't being selfish. If they had given their oil to these other women, none of them would have had enough. It's dark. There are no streetlights. It's midnight. The guys got to, the husband and wife have got to get to the house. If there's no torches, they're lost. It's a disaster. There have to be some torches that are lit. Those women weren't being selfish. They were being wise. And the, kind of the word for us is readiness is not transferable. Your wife won't get you through. Your husband won't get you through. Your mom won't get you through. You're responsible for your own heart. Jesus says to every one of us, be ready. Watch. Be ready. And we all each individually have to take responsibility for our own, for our own heart because he's going to look at you and you and you and you and me and say, did you stand firm? And I can't say, well, I thought she... No. It's me. So readiness is not transferable. And the last thing is the door at some point will be closed. We don't get that because Jesus said he was coming back and it's been 2,000 years. And we think, is it ever going to happen? I don't know when it's going to happen. It might be 2,000 more years. I have no idea. But I know it will happen at some point. I read the longest engagement on record is 67 years. Do proposed to a girl when he was 15, and they got married at 82. I have no idea what was going on during those 67 years. But eventually, they got married. I'm sure there were plenty of times where she thought, it's never going to happen. <laughs> it happened. And the same thing for us. We're in this kind of engagement stage with Jesus, where he says, I'm coming back, wait for me. And we're thinking, how long do we have to wait? for you. At some point, he is going to come back. And when he does, the deal is done. It's, it's, there are no more chances. And so we all need to take advantage of the time that we have now because we don't know. If you go back and read Matthew 24, Jesus compares his coming, the second coming, with the flood in Noah's day. He's, everybody's just doing their deal, and then suddenly the sky opens up and it rains for 40 days. And if you weren't ready, too bad. You had 120 years while Noah was building this ark to get ready, and you didn't. 
And when it starts raining, it's too late. And that's how, what he says his second coming will be like. Everybody's just going to be doing their deal. And at some point, he's going to show up and it's over. When you see him in the sky, it's too late. That means the end has come. And so for all of us, whenever that happens for us, if it's in our life, in the life of our children or our grandchildren or our great-grandchildren or whatever, the word is, be ready. Your readiness is not transferable. And at some point, the door is going to be shut. And if the door for us is not shut because Jesus comes back, it will be shut when we die. And we don't know when that is either. So don't presume upon tomorrow. I think uh, Kim said this at the beginning when she opened. Today is the day of salvation. You don't want to wait. You don't want to presume upon the mercy of God. Don't presume. And it's, it's not a scare tactic. That's just a reality. It's just a reality. We don't, there's so many things that go on that are beyond our ability to control. What you can do is make a decision now that you're going to be ready when Jesus comes back. Let's pray. You guys can come back up. Self-sacrifice. Anything that would make me lower than somebody else. That's a naturalistic worldview. That's why this matters. All these different worldviews that start from, from a foundation of a purposeless creation ultimately end up in I can do whatever I want and nobody can stop me. Or I have to give my life to some human authority. I have to give my power to somebody else and eventually the goal is raising myself up to being in that position of power. Think Jim Jones. Think David Koresh. This purposeless creation leads to that type of thinking. Whereas, if there's a purpose to this world, if God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, because of their love and unity with one another, and for one another, decided to express that relationship into this world and express it in a way that has meaning that changes everything. Then there is a reason for saying there's a foundation for right and wrong and that foundation is defined by the relationship of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Anything we say is good or bad goes back to that relationship, points to that relationship, it flows out of that. All the good is to them. All the bad is anything that takes away from from them, from their relationship, from that relationship of God in the Trinity. Everything about good and evil points back to God. Everything about purpose. Why do you do what you do? You ever asked yourself that question? Why do you do what you do? Whether it's as a, a husband or a wife, a parent, a child, an employee, a student. Why do you do what you do? Did you know it's an expression in some way of the relationship of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? In many cases, we've perverted that relationship because of the unrighteousness of our hearts. But it points back to them. All of life, all of life starts with this God, this Trinity, this three in one. This beautiful, perfect, loving, 
relationship. It matters. It matters because if God created the world with purpose, then there's hope. Then there's hope that things can change. Then there's hope that things can get better. Then there's hope that this life isn't all there is. There's hope for a a better tomorrow. There's hope for, for a bright future. There's hope in Christ Jesus. There's hope that we can be free from that darkened mind, from that futile thinking. There's hope that we can be healed. But if there's no purpose in creation, if it's not an expression of this trinity, there's only hopelessness. Either we're trapped in an endless cycle that goes on and on and on, or we're the product of random chance, and we never know what's going to happen. Hope is the reason. Hope is the reason why it's so essential to go back to Christ. Go back to God the Father. Go back to God the Son as creators. As being the ones who created this world with a purpose. Next week as we unpack this idea, we're going to ask the question, so what? Yeah, this Trinitarian God, this God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit created the world But why? Why is this creation here? Why are we here? What does this world exist for? Notice we're not asking, how did God create the world? He only gives us a few little glimpses into that and says, that's enough for you. You don't need to know anymore. But when we ask why, we ask, what is your purpose in creating the world? We've got a whole book from cover to cover, from beginning to end, that expresses God's purpose. That expresses why we are here, why what we do matters, and why we are the way we are. And it's a beautiful, wonderful thing to see. Statement, isn't it? Even more so, when he traveled around the country and he would do his speaking engagements, what he would do is he would often take along with him some of the residents who lived with him at this home for the physically and mentally challenged. One time, he had a speaking engagement in Washington, D.C., and he took with him a man by the name of Bill, a man who was able to speak. He struggled a lot speaking, but he was certainly challenged in many ways. And they were sitting at the table and it came time for Henry Nowen to speak. And he got up at the podium and he began his, his lecture on the Christian faith. He was going to wow everybody there with uh, you know, this, all the things he knew. About a, two minutes into his lecture, this resident by the name of Bill got up from his chair. Everybody's sitting down. He stood up from his chair and he walked directly up to the podium and he stood right next to Henry Nowen. And Henry says, I didn't know what was going to happen. But I told him at the beginning that we were going to do this together. And so I figured he was coming up to give me moral support. And I just let him do it. And so as I read my pages, I would hand them to him and he would put them on the table next to him. And I thought, oh, I relaxed and said, oh, everything's going to be fine. But then he began to interrupt In fact, at one point I was making this brilliant point to the audience and he said, I've heard that before. 
he said, boy, it felt like a put down in some ways, but I knew in my heart that's not what he was saying. I knew in my heart that what he was saying was, I'm with you, Henry. I heard that before. You taught me that before too. And so it also tended to humiliate me a little bit and remind me that nothing I say is really new. I'm just reteaching what other people have taught down through the ages. He went on. And he said, I I talked about how um, at one particular time um, in my speech, I talked about how the people who are in the home with me, that their greatest concern about me is, will you be there tonight and will you be there tomorrow morning? And Bill immediately interrupted again and said it so loud. He says, that's what uh, Jim Scrimger says. He says, what do you mean, Jim Scrimger? That's exactly what he's concerned about. He's concerned about whether you're going to be there or not, Bill or, or, or Henry. And he would interrupt like this. But what it was doing was drawing the audience in. And what it was also doing was allowing Henry to exhibit his patience with this person who was along with him. Then that person, Bill, asked to talk. And Henry said, oh, I was really scared. I didn't know what to do. Would he ramble on? People could hardly understand him when he spoke. And he got up in front of the podium and he just said, My name's Bill. Last time Henry took Jim Scrimger with him. Today he's taking me. I'm very happy to be here with you. When they finished the whole thing, Bill and Henry stood there together. And and Bill says, We did it together, didn't we, Henry? And Henry said, Yes, we did. It was that kind of patience that he wanted to learn so that his heart would grow with love. Now I ask you, you're all, and I know you don't want to hear this, getting older, aren't you? We're all getting older. We're growing in certain ways. We're growing in our age. Some of us are growing in our bank accounts. Some of us are growing in our businesses. Some of us, our families are growing. Some of us, our waistlines are growing. You know, we're growing, aren't we? We're growing. But are we growing in the most important area that Jesus talked about and that Paul talked about, that the Bible talks about? Are you growing in your heart? And what would it take for you to grow in your heart? To grow in your love. We desire this for the church. We long for it in our children. We desire for it in ourselves. We pray for it daily. May God bless us to be a church, to be a people, To be a husband, a wife, a mother, a father, a grandmother, an aunt, an uncle, whatever it might be, who loves. Amen. Lord God, we ask You 